Uh, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father, mother, wife, children, brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he can't be his disciple. It's pretty full on. You know, discipleship according to Jesus isn't just about learning some content or learning a style of dialogue or just trying to imitate someone a little bit. It's about 100% loyalty and allegiance. And Jesus, I mean, you could, we just picked one, right? But you could pick a whole bunch of passages where Jesus talks about following him and uh, discipleship, and they all have a similar kind of flavor. Complete allegiance and loyalty to Jesus in everything. Nothing short of death to yourself, your wishes, and the prioritization of Jesus' wishes and his will in everything. All the time. Not just when you get saved, all the time. It's extreme, right? Jesus' demands are extreme. And I want to ask the question this morning, why are they so extreme? I think part of the reason why they're so extreme is because that what Jesus is aiming at is the core of what went wrong in the very beginning. Have you ever thought about that? That's actually what went wrong. Putting yourself in the center... And making the world revolve around you was kind of the, the epicenter of what actually went wrong in the very beginning. It was the thing that actually brought a whole bunch of trouble our way. Does anyone know what I'm talking about? It just is. Um, so we're going to look at um, um, family likeness a little bit more today in the context of discipleship. Just have a look on the screen here at this one. This is Genesis 3 verse 6. So God said, don't eat of the tree of life. Sorry, don't eat of the tree the knowledge of, the good, of good and evil, right? So when the woman saw that the tree, after the devil had lied to her, which is what he does all the time, right? That's just his language. Um, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she listened to God. Didn't put herself in the center. She said, no, God knows best. Uh, we'll just do what he says. Let's do that. Because that, that always rocks. It always rocks and peace comes and happiness comes and great things happen whenever you do what God says. That's a different version. <laughs> she took of its fruit and ate and also she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. What happened? Well, I'll tell you what's not happening. There's no dependence upon God's revelation anymore. There's no paying attention to his speaking. There's no looking to him there's none of, none of this kind of have a chat to God and work out between the two of you and listen to him about what he's going to say to you about, about what's going to be best. It's just doing what we think's best. Self in the center. Now, is it really that bad to have self in the center? Like some of you last week when I was talking about this passage out of uh, Luke that we, that we looked at last week, he's just going, hate? Like, you know, and some of Jesus' minders, I'm sure, are just going to him like, oh, <laughs> are you sure you want to use that word? Like, we could, we could just, let's just tone it down and we, we can massage that a bit and maybe we can keep this mega church that's uh, kind of following you. You know, Jesus said that we've got to love people, right? So he mustn't mean hate. And you know what Jesus is doing? He's just, it's just classic Jesus, right? He's just pinning you in the corner. He's just going to paint you right into the corner. And you know what he's doing in that corner is he's saying, you have to do something with me. 
I mean, we went through the whole of the book of Mark, those of you who are here, and you knew that that's exactly what Jesus did the whole way through the book of Mark. He's always just boxing people in the corner and saying, you have to deal with me and you've got to work out what you're going to do with me. But what do we do? Well, we duck and weave. And there's some legit questions in there, right, about, um, about does Jesus say that we should love people? What's the answer? Yes, he does. So his point is not to go out and become a hater, right? We know the world's got enough haters. True? But in comparison to your allegiance to Christ, there's going to be times where it looks like hate to other people around you. Are you up for that? Jesus said, didn't he? He was the one that said, I've not come to bring peace but a sword and that there's going to be division. All right. Just to get us in the swing of it. And I've actually, today's about good news, right? And we're getting there. Last week I uh, asked if people wanted good news and I told you some more bad news, which is like you're going to lose everything everyway. So anyway, so you might as well just give it to Jesus. Can you uh, open your Bibles to Mark 10? I just want to read a uh, passage out of Mark 10. Don't even want to say that much about it because I think it's pretty self-explanatory and it's, it's a pretty good passage for people in the West that have heaps of stuff. If you haven't got a Bible, there's heaps up the back. Just go and grab one. And uh, if, you, um, if you don't have one at home, just take it home with you and keep it. Mark 10, starting at verse 17. All right, there's another thing about following Jesus. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? That's a good question. And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud on your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these I've kept from my youth. Now, he's either lying or he's a legend, right? And there's a lot of lying legends. So maybe he's both. Um, I don't know. I like, maybe he's just blind and he can't, I think he's blind. Uh, at least in terms of the hard issues. Anyway, and he said to him, teach all these I've kept from my youth. And Jesus looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing, go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. And does that, does that sound similar to last week? Like a similar kind of deal, right? It's like, here's a guy and he's going, yeah, I, like, I really want to, you know, I want to be in your clan and I want the eternal life thing. And Jesus goes, yeah, cool. So, you know, follow me with your behavior you know follow me in the commandments and kind of test him out there and he goes yeah yeah no nail that uh, okay we'll just sell everything verse 22 of uh, mark 10 disheartened by the saying he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions see it's a critical fail if you don't give your total 100% allegiance to Jesus and Jesus just tested this guy out, okay? And he failed the test. What does it take to follow Jesus? Um, everything. <laughs> just, that's all. Just everything. And, and the big fear is that we think we're going to be bankrupt once we get rid of everything even though we know that when you sell everything, you give everything to Jesus, you get everything. I mean, didn't Jesus himself say, uh, it's the Father's desire, little flock, to give you the kingdom. No one, no one ever gets ripped off 
by Jesus. But you don't get in unless you're prepared to just let it all go. Now, I'm going to read a little bit more in this passage, but one final comment about it. I wonder how many of us are glad that Jesus hasn't directly asked us to do what he asked this rich man to do. You know, and, and it's easy, right? In the ways you sit there and you just go, yeah, no, if Jesus actually, if he showed up this morning and he was standing there and I could see, you, see him like I look at you, Peter, and he said to me, I need you to sell everything, I would. Maybe he is. Maybe he is asking you to sell everything. Maybe, maybe that's something that the Spirit's going to say to you. Would you do it? I mean, at the very least, you come into the kingdom, you become part of Jesus' kingdom, and he just goes, yeah, look, all the stuff that you thought was your stuff was always mine anyway, and now when you come to me, you give it all to me, and it's all now at my disposal for you to invest in my kingdom. True? That's, that's the deal. So you use it to invest in your kids, right, because they're part of his kingdom, and you want to see them grow in Jesus and, and grow up as people, and you use it to invest in the church, and you use it to invest in your neighbours, and you, it's, it's all investment now. And uh, you're a steward, and you only ever were a steward because he owns everything anyway, and your gig is basically to get the best returns that you possibly can on his money that you possibly can, true? That's, that's the deal. It's, all, it's, it's never not been the deal. It's just that we live in, a, in an alternate reality. Uh, let's read uh, verse 23 and uh, following a bit there. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples are amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And this just kind of blows their circuits. Um, and they're exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. And listen to what Peter says. Peter began to say to him, he's like the spokesperson for the group, right? It's always cool when you've got a spokesperson like this in a group because it takes the heat off everyone else. He's kind of saying the dumb things that other people are thinking, but they're not going to say, right? Have you ever been in a group like that? It's like, I'm glad we've got John over here, right? Because he is just going to say all the stuff that we're all thinking that we're not going to say. And it's like, he's like the crash test dummy in the disciples, isn't he? Man? Like with, with Jesus, it's like, oh man, you actually open your mouth and you say what you think and you're probably going to hit a brick wall sometimes in Jesus because he's going to duck and weave on you, right? Peter began to say to him, see, we've left everything and followed you. And, and you hear that because that's one of the things I talked about last week was um, Jesus had, there were these three groups of people, the religious people, the crowd and the disciples. And Jesus was constantly calling the crowd to become disciples. And the way that you actually became a disciple is to leave everything and follow Jesus, literally. And they'd done that. So well done, Peter. Yeah, you guys have done well. Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands. <laughs> is this in your version? With persecutions? Some of you are getting the pen out right now. 
Yeah, the Sharpie. Let's uh, black that one out. And in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. What's Jesus saying there? Well, you don't get ripped off. It's, it is going to be hard being his disciples, but you don't get ripped off. The bottom line here, folks, is it's difficult to get into heaven. The disciples have said, we've given up everything. And that's how you actually be his disciple. But here's the reality, like you can do that when you become a Christian, right? You can actually give up everything and say, I'm all for Jesus. But who knows, you've got to do that every day and every minute of every day. The death to self thing is just a, it's just a constant thing. You know, last week we had communion and I said, look, if you just feel like you can't just go the full tilt and say, and enter into the death of Christ and, and just be dead to yourself today, don't take it. And it, doesn't, it wasn't about worthiness. It was just like, in the moment, it, is your heart in the right place for this? And I, I think it's okay. It's okay not to take communion. I think it's great to take communion and it's a good thing to do. But it's good to come face to face with the reality of what it means to participate in the death of Christ. There's a... Um, <laughs> there's an irony in humanity putting themselves in the center an irony is uh, where something looks like on the surface it's the case but underneath it's different it's gone almost the opposite of what you can see it's like two kind of opposite things see humanity putting themselves in the center was about them just kind of making their life go the way that they wanted it to go and the bottom line is that when you do that you've just handed over control and become a slave to something and you're guaranteed of not being able to make your life go the way that you want it to go it looks like it a little bit. I mean, you can see that in this passage, right, in Mark. It's like you can't get into heaven. Like the thing that is the most important in all of life and that's entering into the life that God has for you, you can't do that if you put yourself in the centre. You just can't get there. Which is weird, right? Because why do people put themselves in the centre? They put themselves in the centre because they think that that's going to bring life. You with me? And so you're automatically just... All of, you're in a place that you can't get what you want. But you think you're in that place to get what you want, but yet it doesn't let you get what you want. Have I confused you? Let me uh, give you an identity statement for, uh, <laughs> for us, not just at the project, but for everyone who comes to Jesus. Here's, here's an identity statement. We are people who can't get our crap together. True? And that doesn't change. We, we are not self-reliant people that put ourselves on the centre and we can pull all our crap together and even when we can't, we're not going to let anyone know. We are people who openly say we can't get our crap together. Is anyone with me on that? Now, there's lots of different ways to talk about having the self at the centre, right? You can talk about pride... You can talk about comfort, wanting to be comfortable. You can talk about self-idolatry. You can talk about wanting to escape. Uh, but I want to throw one particular uh, way of understanding this whole self at the centre thing your way. Um, and it's, it, it's captured by this, um, this phrase, self-reliance. Self-reliance, a trusting in yourself. And here's, here's my question for you this morning. Um, 
how bad is self-reliance? So there you go. Let's, you said 10 minutes ago, we're having good news. But we'll get there, right? And it is most of where we're going today. But I just want to, I want you to see this, right? Uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson was an American philosopher and he had a whole bunch of uh, thoughts on self-reliance. And in particular, he wrote a whole essay which I've read on self-reliance. He loves it. He loves self-reliance. Let me give you a, a couple of his quotes. Here's the first one. Self-trust is the first secret of success. Man, I look at that and you go, oh, man, you know, if you stand sideways and you look with a bit of parallax error on it, you just go, oh, there might be some way that that could actually be right. And then he starts saying things like this. Trust thyself, every heart vibrates to that iron string. Digs in deeper. Self-trust is the essence of heroism. <laughs> well, how bad is it? Can you turn with me to uh, 2 Corinthians 1? 2 Corinthians 1. Now, some of you know this chapter uh, because it's a chapter about God's comfort and it is a chapter about God's comfort. Right in the middle of all this talk about God's comfort, there's this piece that just kind of pops in there. There's a little testimonial story by Paul and it's just intense, all right? And it's an odd thing to kind of stick right in the middle of a, a bit of a, uh, a, diet, sorry, a, a passage on comfort. 2 Corinthians 1, go down to verse 8. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. Listen to this. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. They're on death row. All the legal stuff has taken place, right? And they're just waiting for the day where they go into the execution chamber and they get taken out. That's what he's saying. It was so bad. The situation that we were in was so bad that we had given up on life. They weren't suicidal, but they'd given up on life. And it's like, I'm just waiting for someone to come and take my head off with a sword. That's, that's where it got to. Now, what was the purpose behind them being in this situation go back to the text there in verse 9 but that was to make us rely not on ourselves but on God and what was this reliance upon God not even that he was going to get them out of the situation but he's someone who raises the dead he delivered us from such a deadly peril and he will deliver us on him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again You know, that's a hell of a way to learn it, right? <laughs> you see that? Like, have you ever been there? Have you, have you, has God ever led you to a place where you just go, I'm done, I'm finished? Because you know what his purpose is, is his purpose is to take out your self-reliance. And here's, here's where it gets good. Right? This is where the message really gets good. That's the best thing for you. It is totally the best thing that could ever happen to you 
that you would stop being self-reliant. So in his grace, what's he going to do? He's going to push you and push you and push you and you're going to get cranky with him and you'll get angry with him and you'll get frustrated and you'll isolate yourself from people and you'll isolate yourself from him and you won't talk to him sometimes. He's just going to push you and push you and push you into a place where you'll give up relying upon yourself. Because that is beautiful. Now, there's two ways. See if you can hang, hang here with me on this. There's two ways to talk about the badness of something. All right? You can talk about the badness kind of intrinsically in a thing, right? So you're just going to go, pride's bad, it's evil. Um, God's, you know, putting yourself in the centre of evil when God's the centre of everything. We could kind of go down that track big time. Another way of actually talking about it is there's something really, really good over here that I've passed up. And that's where I want to go now is there's something really, really good that you pass up if you choose not to die to yourself. Do you know what dying to yourself does? We, uh, we were down in Acts 29, right? And we're in uh, Q1, in a unit in Q1. And uh, we went into the unit and uh, it was pretty awesome actually. It was 46 floors up, went in. I don't know whether you've ever had this experience. You went in and you just go, oh man, like seriously, someone just needs to open a window, right? It wasn't that it stank, but it was just stuffy and the air was thick and just kind of go, oh, we've got to open a window, but we're 46 floors up, so where's the aircon control unit? We go over to this aircon control unit, right? We're pushing buttons on this thing. We're kind of, how do we get this thing to work, you know? And we've got, we've got multiple people on this task. I mean, the control unit's only got six buttons on it, right? But there's three dudes in this unit, and they're walking around, they're putting their hands up in front of Vince, and, and eventually, you know what happens is this air conditioner starts pumping out cool air, and, I mean, it smells fresh, probably isn't it's probably just recycled but it smells fresh and uh i said how did that happen because <laughs> we couldn't work out how to start it you know what you know what uh, someone said i think it was alan i said we just hit the reset button that's what we did and do you know you know what death to self is death to self is your soul's reset button that's what it is what does it do Death to self actually takes you back to the way that all of us were made before sin got involved in the world. That's what it does. It just restores normal operation. That's what it does. So when you don't die to yourself, you're just a wacky air conditioner getting around that's not working properly. Or whatever. And it's like when Jesus says, here's what you need to do, you need to die to yourself, he's really saying you need to hit the reset button and be restored to normal operation. Dependency. Looking to Him. Imaging Him. Not being in the center. That's normal. That's normal for a human. A true human is just not in the center. Our desires kind of become subservient to our love for Jesus. We, we worship Him and we love Him. We're reconnected to him. We're united to him. It's really about reverting back to the original. That's what it is. Can you turn to uh, Genesis chapter 1? 
Genesis 1. Verse 26, Genesis 1, verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image. Now, the Hebrew word, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, right? And the Hebrew word for image is selim, okay? And do you know it's translated in other parts of the Old Testament as idol? That's what it's translated as, right? So the big idea here back in the Near East was that uh, a ruler who was in power didn't have like Twitter and Facebook and all that sort of stuff without posting stuff and they could secretly be in your house and in your, kind of in your bed on your phone when you're reading your phone and kind of be everywhere. They could only be in one place. So one of the things that they would actually do is they'd erect these statues, these idols of themselves around the place that were representative of the rule of the ruler. So in all the places where they were absent, they'd set these things up. So it looks like what God's done is like, I'm the king, I'm the king of all of this. And I've actually created you and I've made you in my image to be representatives of my rule and who I am around the place. Okay? And we'll keep going. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, there's lots of debate about the image of God, right? But let me, let me just keep this on really basic. Go across to Genesis chapter 5, verse 1 to 3. Because the Old Testament actually doesn't tell you exactly what it is to be made in God's image, but I think there's a pretty strong hint in Genesis 5, verse 1 to 3. And it's probably not a scripture that you spent time meditating on for that long. It's, it's one of the genealogy ones, right? And it's probably not on your wall, or on your mirror, or anywhere. But this is an interesting one. This is the book, this is Genesis 5, this is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. You hear the same terminology as Genesis 1 there. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them men when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, who's up for that? Who would like to go 130? You guys, are, you're not very aspirational. It's like two of you out of a 120 Man, maybe you need some counselling or something. It's just something, man, life's that hard, is it? It's like I'm not doing another 80 years of this, all right? I've read the stuff about what happens when you die and I'm up for that. When Adam had lived 130 years, listen to this same terminology, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and he named him Seth. Now, you know, one of the things I think you can conclude about what the image of God means is that image has to do with family, doesn't it? Like you can see that in Genesis 5 there, like image and likeness, Seth is in the image and likeness of Adam. It's family, there's a relational reality that's actually going on here. You go back to Genesis 1, what are we? Where? Let me put it all together for you, we are royal family. That's all we are. We're royal family that's meant to go around and do a bunch of cool stuff around the place. That's all we are. Dependent upon him, we're like him. We're, we're like the father. And who knows that that image gets wrecked. I mean, it gets wrecked a bit in Genesis 3. And there's even a debate amongst theologians as to whether there's any residual image left over of the image of God. I think there is. I think 
one of the uh, evidences for that is Genesis 9 verse 6 where it talks about um, it talks about this whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed for God made man in his own image I think that's implying that there's a residual image left over there you know in a very real sense here's, here's some other terminology yeah you're still kind of connected to God and you're a little bit like him but do you know what you are you're estranged that's what you are you don't know him anymore you're relationally disconnected and things are just being mangled a bit I love that uh, as I <laughs> probably shouldn't even talk about it but has anyone seen that sports bet ad where the guy's sitting there and he's, he's, he's got the clay kind of potter's wheel there and he's... Does anyone know the one I'm talking about? It's not the, fun, the funniest... No, you don't, you don't, right? You're all sitting there like a paddock of cows looking at me. Um, no, no insult. But it's this, it's this uh, <laughs> dude sitting there. He's got the potter's wheel and it's spinning and he's forming this beautiful bowl. And then the commentator comes and he goes, yes! And then he goes like that. The whole thing just gets wrecked, right? And then he's trying to get this thing all back together again and it's all kind of all over the place. And it's very, uh, it's very funny. But uh, that's kind of the situation that we find ourselves in is that we are. We, do, we still bear some of that likeness. And in a sense, um, we're still God's children in a sense, but estranged and, uh, and separated from him. Even in our rebellion, we bear his image. You know, wanting to do our own thing, constantly wanting to save our lives. Why do we need to die to self? Because the life that we want to live kills us. That's why. I mean, John Owen uh, years ago said this. He said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. You know, it... It's pretty direct last week, right? But it's important, you know. Like there's a whole bunch of stuff at stake, you know. Like if you, if you just keep living with yourself in the centre and you keep worshipping stuff around you that's not Jesus, you know what you're doing? It's just death by a thousand cuts. That's what it is. It's death by a thousand cuts and you will die. You will die. And, and for some people last week, maybe they haven't even come back this week, Right? It didn't feel particularly loving, but I think it, uh, my heart is that it is, it, it is loving. Like, s- stop doing that. Why? Because life exists in a different place. It doesn't exist where you think it is. You know, 1 Peter 2 tells us, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. And dying to self embraces God. That's what it does. It aligns to God. It's dependence upon God. It's a return to His family. It makes God the soul's only hope. That's how you become a disciple of Jesus. That's how you get restored as a person. So I'm going to go back to a question I asked two weeks ago, which you probably don't even remember now. Maybe you do. Where did all the discipleship go? I mean, you get to the New Testament and um, in the New Testament there, you have this, uh, the notion of discipleship shows up through Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, shows up in Acts and then just drops off the cliff. You don't see it in Romans, Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. You don't see it for the rest of the New Testament. You know what you see? 
Well, the beginning of Romans, Paul calls the Christians brothers and sisters. 1 Corinthians, brothers and sisters. 2 Corinthians 1, at the start of it, brothers and sisters. In Galatians, brothers and sisters. Uh, in Ephesians, God's holy people to our God and Father is at the end. Philippians 1, God's holy people in Christ and brothers and sisters. Colossians 1, holy people, brothers and sisters. 1 Thessalonians, brothers and sisters. 2 Thessalonians, brothers and sisters. 1 Timothy, listen to this from Paul. Timothy, my true son. How warm is that? Man of God. 2 Timothy, my dear son. Philemon, a little bit of an exception. Fellow workers, prisoners, Hebrews, brothers and sisters. James, brothers and sisters. 1 Peter, elect exiles and children. 2 Peter, friends. 1 John, children, friends, 2 John, children. You get the point? You can just go through these books and just see the prominence of family speak. <laughs> That's what it is. And I think what actually happens with discipleship is discipleship in the Gospels and in Acts ends up becoming a part of a larger reality and that's family. And what's the point of being in God's family? Well, it's to reflect his likeness. You know, I think, I think Jesus kind of hints at this in, um, in Matthew 12. Can you go there in your Bibles? Matthew 12, 46. Matthew 12, 46. While Jesus was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? That's not what Jesus says. And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Now, lest you think that that's just a weird kind of cultish kind of thing that's going on there, what's he really saying? Audience participation time. What's he, what's he saying? We're family. We're family. That's what we are. And, and you know what gets you into that family? Verse 50. Whoever does the will of who? The father. Oh, we just keep running into this family thing, right? Whoever does the will of the father. In heaven is my brother and sister and mother. I mean, Hebrews tells us that Jesus is not ashamed to call us his brother. You love Jesus, you're in the family. Go back across to uh, John chapter 1. John chapter 1. You, you probably know this text. Verse 9. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his people did not receive him. And there's a, just a whole bunch of tragedy going on there. Uh, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become what? Children of God. Or another word you could use for it is? Family. 
You can be family. Now, here's how this family rolls. Let me um, give you this. The center of this family is the father, right? And Jesus is, we know from Hebrews 1, the exact representation of the father. So what does he do? Well, he bears the family likeness, doesn't he? He bears it. It's like, Dad's like this, I'm just like him. <laughs> just exactly like him. And I'm not even a copy, I'm like him, but I'm actually the real deal as well. I'm God as well. It's like, I'm a copy. So what does Jesus do? Jesus comes down, he walks out uh, in incarnated divine life, goes to the cross, dies on the cross, and provides the opportunity for all of us to not be orphan, estranged kids anymore, but to actually be part of his family again. Is anyone excited about that? Because that is amazing, right? That is incredible. That is life-changing, right? And then what happens when you get into his family? Well, you take on the family likeness. And there's a little bit kind of left over. Like there's some stuff left over, you know? And the person doing the most evil thing right now on the face of the planet still has a little bit of this image of God kind of left over. But when you come into the family, you know what the gig is? You just need to become more like your dad. And, and your brother Jesus is going to help you with that and the Spirit's going to help you with that and you just take on more and more and more of the family likeness. See, this is, this is what discipleship is about, right? This is what discipleship is about, I think, is take on the family likeness. <laughs> Look more and more like Him. 